welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and today I am reading the third part of the autobiography of a sexually emancipated communist woman by Alexandra Kolontai. This was written in 1926, and if you haven't heard the first two parts, you should go back and listen to those before you listen to this third part. I'm going to just go ahead and start reading since I'm trying to really get through what is a fairly substantial memoir that she wrote. Again, as I mentioned in the first episode, I am including the parts that were censored or struck out of the record by um, the censors when this was published, because of course Stalin was already in power in 1926. So in the last episode, Kolontai talked a lot about her private life and her childhood, and now she's going to start talking about her kind of political awakening starting in 1905 with Bloody Sunday. Now, Bloody Sunday was a peaceful protest by the workers in St. Petersburg, actually led by a Russian Orthodox priest, and the Tsar basically opened fire and slaughtered a bunch of peaceful protesters. And because of this protest, eventually the Tsar agreed to have a kind of constitutional monarchy to create a kind of parliament that would, you know, uh, rule alongside the autocracy. But of course, it also meant that the secret police and the Tsar and his family were more paranoid than ever and more vicious in their subjugation and persecution of socialists and communists. And of course, Alexandra Kolontai counted herself at this point among the socialists. In 1905, at the time of the so-called first revolution in Russia broke out, after the famous Bloody Sunday, I had already acquired a reputation in the field of economic and social literature. And in those stirring times, when all energies were utilized in the storm of revolt, it turned out that I had become very popular as an orator. Yet in that period, I realized for the first time how little our party concerned itself with the fate of the women of the working class, and how meager was its interest in women's liberation. To be sure, a very strong bourgeois women's movement was already in existence in Russia. But my Marxist outlook pointed out to me with an illuminating clarity that women's liberation could take place only as the result of the victory of a new social order and a different economic system. Therefore, I threw myself into the struggle between the Russian suffragettes and strove with all my might to induce the working class movement to include the woman question as one of the aims of its struggle in its program. It was very difficult to win my fellow members over to this idea. I was completely isolated with my ideas and demands. Nevertheless, in the years 1906 to 1908, I won a small group of women party comrades over to my plans. I wrote an article published in the illegal press in 1906, in which for the first time I set forth the demand to call the working class movement into being in Russia through systemic party work. In autumn of 1907, we opened up the first working women's club. Many of the members of this club, who were still very young workers at that time, now occupy important posts in the new Russia and in the Russian Communist Party. One result of my activity in connection with the women workers, but especially of my political writings, among which was a pamphlet on Finland containing the call to rise up against the Tsarist Duma with arms, 
was the institution of legal proceedings against me, which held out the grim prospect of spending many years in prison. I was forced to disappear immediately and was never again to see my home. My son was taken in by good friends, my small household liquidated. I became an illegal. It was a time of strenuous work. The first All-Russian Women's Conference, which had been called by the bourgeois suffragettes, was scheduled to take place in December of 1908. At that time, the reaction was on the rise, and the working-class movement was prostrate again after the first victory in 1905. Many party comrades were in jail. Others had fled abroad. The vehement struggle between the two factions of the Russian Workers' Party broke out anew. The Bolsheviks on the one side, the Mensheviks on the other. In 1908, I belonged to the Menshevik faction, having been forced thereto by the hostile position taken by the Bolsheviks towards the Duma, a pseudo-parliament called by the Tsar in order to pacify the rebellious spirits of the age. Although with the Mensheviks, I espoused the point of view that even a pseudo-parliament should be utilized as a tribute for our party and that the elections for the Duma must be used as an assembling point for the working class. But I did not side with the Mensheviks on the question of coordinating the forces of the workers with the liberals in order to accelerate the overthrow of absolutism. On this point, I was, in fact, very left radical and was even branded as a syndicalist by my party comrades. Given my attitude towards the Duma, it logically followed that I considered it useless to exploit the first bourgeois women's congress in the interest of our party. Nevertheless, I worked with might and main to assure that our women workers, who were to participate in the Congress, emerged as an independent and distinct group. I managed to carry out this plan, but not without opposition. My party comrades accused me and those women comrades who shared my views of being, quote unquote, feminists, and of placing too much emphasis on matters of concern to women only. At the time, there was still no comprehension at all of the extraordinarily important role in the struggle devolving upon self-employed professional women. Nevertheless, our will prevailed. A women workers group came forward at the Congress in St. Petersburg with its own program, and it drew a clear line of demarcation between the bourgeois suffragettes and the women's liberation movement of the working class in Russia. However, I was forced to flee before the close of the Congress because the police had come upon my tracks. I managed to cross the frontier into Germany and thus in December of 1908 began a new period of my life, political emigration. So now there begins a new section called the years of political emigration. And in the section that I just read, I think it's really important again to highlight that she was a Menshevik she saw herself as thinking at that time that having a parliament could be used to promote working class interests and that she was certainly opposed to the bourgeois suffragettes. She wanted to have an overthrow of the social and economic order in order to guarantee women's liberation. But on the other hand, she also faced criticism and struggles against her communist and socialist colleagues who thought that women should not fight separately from men for their independence and liberation, and that the primary struggle was a class struggle and not a struggle for gender equality. So she's stuck because on the one hand, there's a woman's movement, and on the other hand, there's the socialist movement. 
the women's movement doesn't recognize the validity of the socialist position or the working class position, and the working class or the socialists don't really recognize the validity of the women's position. And here, Alexandra Kollontai is following in the long line of socialist theorists, but particularly looking back to somebody like Flora Tristan, who is saying that you cannot have socialism without feminism, and you cannot have feminism or women's liberation without socialism. That's actually a quote from Inessa Armand, but I'm paraphrasing that here because I think that it well represents Alexandra Kollontai's position at this period of time. So this next section is the years of political emigration. As a political refugee, henceforth, I lived in Europe and America until the overthrow of Tsarism in 1917. As soon as I arrived in Germany, after my flight, I joined the German Social Democratic Party in which I had many personal friends, among whom I especially numbered Karl Liebknecht, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Kautsky, Clara Zetkin, also had a great influence on my activity in defining the principles of the women workers movement in Russia. Already in 1907, I had taken part as a delegate from Russia in the first international conference of socialist women that was held in Stuttgart. This gathering was presided over by Clara Zetkin, and it made an enormous contribution to the development of the women's workers movement along Marxist lines. I put myself at the disposal of the party press as a writer on social and political questions, and I was also frequently called upon as an orator by the German party. But I assumed no leading posts, either in the Russian party or in the German party. By and large, I was mainly a popular orator and an esteemed political writer. I can now openly confess that in the Russian party, I deliberately kept somewhat aloof from the controlling center. And that is explainable mainly by the fact that I was not yet in complete agreement with the policy of my comrades. But I had no desire to pass over to the Bolsheviks. Nor could I, for that matter, since at the time it seemed to me as if they did not attach sufficient importance to the development of the working class movement in breadth and depth. Therefore, I worked on my own, seemingly almost as though I wanted to remain in the background without setting my sights or obtaining a leading position. Here it must be admitted that, although I possessed a certain degree of ambition, like every other active human being, I was never animated by the desire to obtain a post. For me, what I am was always of less importance than what I can, that is to say, what I was in a position to accomplish. In this way, I too had my ambition, and it was especially noticeable there where I stood with my whole heart and soul in the struggle, where the issue was the abolition of the slavery of working women. I had above all set myself the task of winning over women workers in Russia to socialism and, at the same time, of working for the liberation of woman for her equality of rights. My book, The Social Foundations of the Women's Question, had appeared shortly before my flight. It was a polemical disputation with the bourgeois suffragettes, but, at the same time, a challenge to the party to build a viable women workers movement in Russia. The book enjoyed a great success. At that time, I wrote for the legal and illegal press. Through an exchange of letters, I tried to influence party comrades and women workers themselves. Naturally, I always did this in such a way that I demanded from the party that it espoused the cause of women's liberation. I did not always have an easy time of it. Much passive resistance, little understanding, and even less interest for this aim over and over again lay as an obstacle in the path. It was not until 1914, shortly before the outbreak of the World War, that finally both factions, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, 
took up the question in an earnest and practical way, a fact which had on me an effect almost tantamount to a personal commendation. Two periodicals for working women were launched in Russia. The International Working Women's Congress of March 8, 1914 was celebrated. I was still living in exile, however, and could help the so dearly beloved women workers movement in my homeland only from afar. I was in close contact, also from afar, with the working women of Russia. Already several years earlier, I had been appointed by the Textile Workers Union as an official delegate to the Second International Congress of Socialist Women, 1910, and further to the Extraordinary International Socialist Congress in Basel in 1912. Later, when a draft of a bill on social insurance was introduced in the Russian pseudo-parliament, the Duma, the Social Democratic Duma faction of the Menshevik wing requested me to elaborate the draft of a bill on maternity welfare. It was not the first time that the faction lay claim to my energies for legislative work. Just before I was forced to go into exile, I had been enlisted by them as a qualified expert to participate in the deliberation of the question of Finland in the Imperial Duma. The task that had been assigned to me, namely the elaboration of a draft of a bill in the field of maternity welfare, motivated me to undertake a most thorough study of this special question. I studied the question in England, France, and in the Scandinavian countries. The result of these studies was my book, Motherhood and Society, a comprehensive work of 600 pages on maternity welfare and the relevant legislation in Europe and Australia. The fundamental regulations and demands in this field, which I summed up at the end of my book, were realized later in 1917 by the Soviet regime in the first social insurance laws. All right, so I'm going to stop there. But I just want you to pay attention here to the fact that Kolontai is owning her work for the Mensheviks. She is basically admitting to the fact that she did not join the Bolshevik party until much later. She did ha hold out hope in some ways for parliamentary democracy. And she realized that the Duma might be able to pass laws that would be helpful to women and women workers and women who had children. And she was very much affiliated with the German Social Democratic Party, of course, until the uh, until World War One and the German Social Democratic Party votes war credits to the Kaiser, which is a big problem for the international socialist movement. That's sort of the moment when many former Mensheviks break and decide to become Bolsheviks and side with Lenin, who was totally opposed to the war. But I think, you know, here Kolontai is doing her best to kind of give us a little bit of background on her life, the work that she did, the studies that she did, the sacrifices that she made. Obviously, she wants to make herself look good, but she also wants to show that the position that she got after 1917 as Commissar of Social Welfare in the first Bolshevik government was really an earned position because nobody else was really talking about women's rights and women's liberation in quite the same way that Kolontai was in Russia. And she was really the person to really push not only against the, you know, sort of what she called the Russian suffragettes, the sort of bourgeois women's movement in order to include the interests and needs of working women. But she also spent a lot of time pushing her socialist and co communist comrades to pay attention to the women's issue. And in many ways, when both the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks come to understand that women's issues are really front and center and that they will get a lot of support from women uh, if they deal with these issues in a practical way, 
that really, you know, Kolontai herself says that it felt like a personal commendation, that she really had achieved something by bringing these parties along to see the value of, of working women and advocating for women's liberation as part and parcel of a socialist program, which is a, a really important point for us today in 2019. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so very much for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Please rate or rank or tweet or whatever it is that you do on social media and keep up the good fight. Oh,